Welcome back to part two of this Pro Video Coalition podcast, where we're talking with Philip Grossman about his adventure filmmaking travels and his gear and how he packs and just how he goes about being able to travel the world and shoot stills and video in some of these most exclusive uh, locations, which he sometimes sneaks into. This is the continuation of the podcast from last time. This is part two. Hope you enjoy it. There's some amazing high-end camping stuff like yep. like like that if you really dig into it. Yep, and I, I've searched out as much as I can the flashlights and and you know the the shower bat you know the rags for doing showers which are sort of like the the, the baby wipes mm-hmm. you know and those that that's what I do and you just it's sort of you deal with things as you go the the trip into Uzbekistan so that one was interesting that you know we got to which is this little village in northern northeastern uzbekistan and you know there's goats walking through the street and you know the 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 hotel we stayed at and you know no air conditioning and it's it's hot it's a desert and we had to find a local who would drive us the last it's about 100 kilometers or so 60 miles 70 miles but it takes about seven hours because it's all desert roads so what we were going to look for is aerolisk 7 what's also known as an island it was an island in the middle of the aerial sea which was the fourth largest sea in the world it's now 15th 17th something like that the russians used it to irrigate cotton fields and wound up draining it oh my gosh it was an island in the middle it's no longer an island it's actually a contested border because it borders Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. It used to be, well, here's the, the sea. So we, you know, the, the border sort of ran through the middle of the sea, but nobody could really pinpoint it. Well, now that it's land, so to try and find somebody to take us up there took us about three or four days. So we're just sort of hanging out. I'm, you know, I read a lot. You know, I, yeah, I, I bet. And there's a lot of hurry up and wait as we're trying to find people. Finally found a person. He drove us. I took a satellite phone with me because I knew it'd be in an area that had no cell service whatsoever. We get up there. He drives us. We get to Airless Sevens broken into two parts, the laboratory area, and then two kilometers from there is the, the, the town. And it's about 1,500 uh, scientists and their families live there. And this is where they made anthrax and other biological weapons. <laughs> and I wanted to go document it. Very simple. Very simple thing. Yeah, they just made anthrax yeah. there. Not a big deal. Yeah. In 2000, the U.S., Russia and Uzbekistan joined forces. They spent $20 million to go and decontaminate the area because they just up and left. It felt in the fall of the Soviet Union. They just up and left the laboratory. I mean, all the stuff was there, the canisters and stuff. So, I I mean, I had my respirator. I had gloves because we didn't know what we were going to run into. And we got up there and it was destroyed. It had been blown up five days before we got there. Oh, my gosh. Two months of planning, you know, you know, five, six days of travel yeah. and it was gone. And, it, and you know, we always, people go, well, what happened? I tell people, they knew we were coming. They wanted to hide the evidence. <laughs> uh, but the reality is, I think it was just that the, you know, Uzbeks and Kazakhs, you know, the Uzbeks wanted to prove to the Kazakhs that they own the land. So they blew it up. And so we're sort of a little dejected, you know, all this work. And we're like, well, we know there's abandoned ships. So if you've ever seen pictures of large, ships, uh, cargo ships sitting in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. That's actually the aerial sea because as it dried up, it became ponds basically and the ships couldn't go anywhere and they just were abandoned and you know nothing's left and now they're covered with sand in the desert. So we figured we'd go photograph those since we're there so it wasn't a total waste. And this is where we just, you know, the plan was we were going to sleep in, a, in, a, in one of the abandoned buildings so we didn't bring a lot of food, you know, not a lot of water. We'd film and then we'd come back the next day. 
So Arik didn't even have hiking boots with him. <laughs> you know, he sort of had street shoes. And oh so my gosh! Hike in the desert, you know, and it was, you know, in hindsight, probably not the smartest thing to do, uh, especially with us, you know, going. Well, when should we hike? You know, what do they tell you about hiking in the desert? Never do it during the day. Problem is, at night, a we wouldn't know where we were going, so it's hard, much harder to navigate. And B, we'd have less time because we have to make our way back because the guy we'd only, you know, hired him for one day to wait for us. So we have, we, you know, got him in his place and, you know, we told him where we're going, meet us here in 24 hours. And we set off and I, it was the first trip I've made where I, I actually had some doubts of making it back. I didn't, I didn't think about the water. I didn't have enough. I was using water faster than I oh, calculated. Water, water is a tricky one too, because you, you, there's just, there's no getting around the need for it. Yep. Yep. And, and the now, lack and the lack thereof of it when you don't have it. Yep. And so I've done a lot of research after coming back to find out the best way to hydrate and what you can do. And of course, milk is the number one thing actually for hydrating, but you're not going to carry that in the desert. And now I carry this thing called liquid IV, which is a powder drink mix, which actually helps you hydrate. It's it's like a, you know, a super sports drink. Okay. Instead of being full of sugar, it's actually got, you know, some science behind it. And I carry that. And these are the things that I learned. And what, what, you know, do, you, what do you say? Gatorade's not good for you because it's full of sugar? Oh, yeah. Imagine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Marketing. Um, I know, I know. And so we went off, we shot, you know, we got, you know, our 18 kilometer or 18 miles out, 19 miles out. We camped in the middle of the desert. I'll, I'll send you a photo of me just sort of, and it's again, I froze that one time in Kazakhstan. And so I changed my model and I now use a, I think it's called GoTo Gear. I think it's in the company or on the go gear. I'll, I'll have to dig it up. But it's effectively a a bag for your sleeping bag. It's not a bivy sack, but it's made out of Tyvek. And if you know what Tyvek is, it's the house wrap stuff that you know mm-hmm. people put on the outside of their house before they put brick up. So it, it does let water go through, but not air. And this particular model is woven with metallic fibers. So it helps radiate the heat. And it also helps because then when I put my sleeping pad in, I roll my sleep. I don't roll off the pad. And so I had that with me and we just camped outside. I, I called my wife on the on the uh, satellite phone just to let her know I was okay and what had happened. And, you know, things are going great. Don't worry. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, and she, she said afterwards she knew that something was up just in my voice. And so slept the night. And the next morning it was cold and rainy in the desert. And, of course, we weren't prepared for it. So my bivy sack got cut up and turned into a poncho. Wow. <laughs> you know, fantastic. No, that's your Boy Scout skills right there. Yep. Made our way back. And uh, I did leave two blue shape batteries and the tripod head in the desert. I had to, you know, that was about 10 pounds of weight between the four items or three items. I'm like, I can always buy new, you know, you've got to, at some point in time, you've got to make those decisions, you know, life gear. You know, yeah. Like, uh, well, it's probably not an environmental disaster leaving those batteries in the desert because in that <laughs> desert, who knows what has been left in that desert. I so I think you're okay. Yeah, and we got back to the place where the, the gentleman was supposed to meet us, and we had stored some water there. So that's one of the things, that, a little tip if you're doing long hikes um, and you have a starting point and ending point, instead of trying to carry all the water with you, carry water and leave it along the journey so you'll have it on the way back so you uh-huh. don't have all that weight. And so we left some water, and we got back to the point, and we were just hanging out. It's There's a sign that says, you know, border, border area, and we waited an hour, hour and 20 minutes. The guy never showed up. And that's where I started to get worried. I'm like, crap. Because even if we called, you know, the capital, 
and and that I, I always carry when I do these trips, I have a you know on my iPhone and also a copy of the paper of all of the consulates and the embassies and the various numbers mm-hmm. so that I can reach out to somebody. But like I said, if I reached out to somebody, it's still going to be at least a day before they could get me there, you know, get somebody there. And, you know, I'm like, oh, so we said, well, let's 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 hike back down to where those villages were, you know, the the, the Airlock 7. And uh, we hiked back. It was another 10 miles down the road. And we got there and he was there. And so he said he just didn't want to wait up there because there were military patrols and there he's afraid of getting his car. T- <laughs> so, you know, small, my wife small was, minor detail. You you should have yep. would have been good to know. Yep, She always says, you know, crisis averted. I'm like, OK, good. We're good. And we, you know, we got back to, to Moynock and we're, we're, we're sort of hanging out in Moynock and we're waiting to head back down to Nukus, which is where we flew into. It's a big, you know, sort of metropolitan city. And I, you know, I called the embassy and they're like, well, you know, the airport's closed. And so, well, the airport there is closes quite often because it's an independent province province. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, Okay. Well, what should we do? He's like, well, normally, you know, it's only a day or so, but it's been closed a little while. Your best bet is to make your way to Tashkent, which is the capital, <laughs> three, which is 30-hour drive the other side of the country. Okay, so my, my friend Arik and I and another traveling mate of ours, and we just said, okay, let's, let's sort of make it a, a journey. And so we decided to take the Silk Road. And so we went to Bukhara and Samarkand uh, all the way to Tashkent. So we... 10 hours each day to the city. Then we spent some time in the city, you know, toured and then went to the, got a cab, went to the next city. So it's effectively a 30 hour cab ride, $170. Oh <laughs> okay. That's, that's affordable. I mean, you have yep. to be, you have to be fine with changes, quick changes of plans for this, this yep. kind of thing. Yep. And, and I, and for me, I rely a lot on my friend Arik because he's, he speaks Russian better than I do. And so from a language perspective, he's, 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 and he's also, probably one of the most fearless people I've ever met. So he's definitely a good traveling partner. So that's, I'd say that's one of the, the, the prerequisites of anybody's doing this kind of travel is make sure you know who you're traveling with. Oh so yeah. I've met some cool people, but man, when you travel with them, you know, they are either prima donnas or, you know, get nervous Nellies about everything. And you really sort of have to be, you know, as even keeled as possible. Mm-hmm. these overreact to anything and you've always got to sort of have plan a b and c already thought through so that you know you know what to do if if something happens the worst thing in the world is you know okay if the camera died what's plan b well i've always got my cell phone so i've got something you know Uh, yeah extra batteries or you know you got to think through those things you know i usually will i'll always take extra batteries typically extra cables you know, and I, as much as I want to travel with one camera, I usually wind up traveling with two cameras and my phone. Well, you know, <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, a second. You have not mentioned in these travels, you're not carrying a laptop and hard drives to offload your footage. So I can assume you're just taking tons and tons of, uh, of cards. No. <laughs> so I do carry a laptop. So that's my other carry on bag is my, I have a 511 sort of uh, messenger style bag. So I do have the lightest laptop. And my my hard drive model again. I've worked through this a bit. SSDs have been a godsend. Oh yeah, I can imagine. I keep getting mad when people go, "Oh, we got SSDs that do seven gigabytes of transfer a second." I'm like, I don't want speed. 
the SSD speed at 550 megabytes is fine. I want density. Uh, so my model is I take uh, – I have two G technology. They're a little small. I forget what they call them, but they're they're uh, an NVMe. No, they're not NVMe. They're uh, the U.2 size um, drive, and it's two terabytes. So I have two of those, and then I have two Glyph technology four-terabyte RAIDs. And so the idea is these are, these are SSD RAIDs. SSD RAIDs. So yeah. it's actually two, and it's it's RAID zero, which is a little risky, but it's two two terabyte drives in the in the small case, mm-hmm. and they're really thin, lightweight. You know, they do about nine hundred megabytes transfer, so it's plenty. And I will back up to the drives to two drives at a time, so I always have two copies. But you're um, not you're not taking this with you on the twenty six mile hike no, to the no so or, or into is, Chernobyl. Then then you've just got you've got a, your cards or your correct correct so it's just the cards and that's the you know the with the red it's a little expensive i have the one terabyte and a 512 and you know one terabyte it used to be like three thousand dollars for the mini mag now the good thing is red has that variable compression and you know as much as people go i can't believe you shoot 12 to 1 that's perfectly fine you know especially at 8k because it's a wavelet based compression and the higher the resolution the higher you can compress things because you got more information that's the way wavelets work so i'm usually carrying about a terabyte and a half of cards for the red and then you know for the the canon it's just a handful of you know i think they're 256 and 128 uh gig compact flash how often do you run out of card space when you're in, in in when you're on premise you know i have yet I got close once inside the reactor, and the, the thing about the red is you cannot delete footage off the camera. You know, on my on my Canon, I can that picture came out crap. I'm never gonna be able to use. It. I can delete it and get space back. The red, you can't do that, and it's just because it's used in cinema, and mm-hmm. they don't want anybody to have any potential of accidentally deleting something. So the nice thing is I can I can adjust the compression ratio. So I can you know actually I typically shoot ten to one now but i can up it to 12 to 1 even you know 14 to 1 and get additional storage if i need in it and part of it is really about you know monitoring what you're shooting you know a lot of people just you know spray uh, and pray yep you know i i've been there enough and i sort of know the angles i know the motions i know what i'm trying to get and because i can pull stills from them it makes it really easy that's actually probably the hardest thing is there's a different mindset for a still image from uh, compared to a motion image because you're not moving. Mm-hmm. And so you can't just say, well, I'll just pull a still. Well, if you're shooting, you know, at 180 degree shutter, you know, it's twice the shutter, 148th, and you move the camera, your image is going to be blurry. Yeah. So you've got to know when you're going to take a still. And I've set my red up in such a way that I know when I'm in still mode versus when I'm in motion mode. And then if I'm shooting motion and I know I want to pull a still, I make sure that I, at the beginning or end of the motion that I stand still. So I think this is a place where the the efficiency of the red, the R3D codec of red code is really, really a benefit for you because you can imagine trying to do that with, say, ProRes RAW, which is oh, com- yeah. a compressed codec, but it's very, 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 very big. Like you, yep. I, I can't think of another acquisition format that is probably as clean and high quality, but yet it's efficient in its compression as R3, yeah. as, as red code. Yeah, and um, that's, that's really what, it, you know, and that's if, you know, then people can always argue about, oh, I don't like red color, I like red color, or, you know, I don't like the cameras or the noise profile, whatever, fine, you know, and all that stuff I think is really more personal preference than yeah. anything else, but the red code, the R3D is really the secret to that camera, and it's actually one of the things that took me a while to understand 
the things that you do. And first of all, almost everything is metadata. ISO is metadata because yeah. it's capturing re- raw data. So it doesn't care if, you know, and, you, and it's easy to see. I show somebody, I said, here's the camera. Look, I've overexposed at ISO 800. Now I'm going to change my, uh, and when I say overexposed, red has what they call, we call them the traffic lights. They let you know when you've clipped, I think it's 2% or 5% of that color, uh, of the pixels of that color channel. I said, look, I've clipped all three of these. Now I'm going to take my ISO from 800 down to 100. The clipping doesn't change mm-hmm. because you've clipped the pixels. And yeah. for me, I rarely clip because I'm usually shooting in dark spaces. So it's actually on the other end where I just don't have enough light for the pixels. But you're right. It's that efficiency of that codec that's really sort of been a game changer for how I do things. Have you, um, have you taken your new Grossman Gold? Super cool. What do I, what's the new camera called? Komodo. The Komodo. Komodo, yes. I was going to, I was, yes, I was going to call it the Dakota, but no, the yeah. Komodo. So uh, that, that is a game changer for me because of the weight, weight savings. And I actually did a bunch of different sort of bizarre engineering analysis uh, based on minute of footage per gram of weight. You know, taking the, you know, my red, I mean, the R3D, or excuse me, the, the helium and the Komodo and outfitting them up the way I would assume to use them in the field, weighing them and then knowing how much footage I can get on each. And the Komodo, the, the helium is like one seventh of the footage or one sixth of the footage that I can get, you know, per gram, mm-hmm. you know, weight wise. So I haven't had a chance to take it physically into any of these locations. So we're, Chernobyl was supposed to be the first and we were supposed to go back to Kazakhstan this year. I just don't know with the whole pandemic thing. Yeah. But I did last, you know, two weeks ago sort of said, I can't stay at the house anymore. My wife's like, yeah, it's getting messy. You need to go somewhere. <laughs> but I decided to, to sort of do a test run of a bunch of different gear, different cages, different battery setups, monitors, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I loaded up the Forerunner and drove 6,000 miles across the United States. And then went out to Denver. Um, then we went up to Devil's Tower. went to Yellowstone. went to the Grand Tetons. Was, was that all just as a, as a Komodo test, or were you, were you having it side-by-side side with some of your other, other no, red bodies? No, this was just a Komodo test. I, I, at one point, I was going to take my helium. I'm like, there are people out there doing much better testing than, than I could do, and my yeah. testing is really going to be very uh, specific to how I operate. And so it's not going to be indicative, I think, of how a large majority of people, although there, there are people who do sort of what I do as well, it would be helpful for. But but you, you do uh, more, like you're doing stuff people are actually going to do with it. My problem with some of the, yeah. the, the plethora of YouTube camera testers out there is that's all that they do. They don't use it in real environments. Yeah. It's all just about setting up to make yeah. videos to test cameras. And it's like, you know, at some point that stuff is just not, not useful. Yeah. And part of it is so for me, it's beta software, so I know it's not final. So the images I shoot are going to be good and I can use them, but I wouldn't necessarily use them for a regular production. So mm-hmm. I wasn't as worried about that. I know the quality of the R3D. I know the capability. The sensor in there is amazing. It is it is on par with my Helium in terms of dynamic range, plus it's it's a global shutter, which is really you know amazing. Keep so especially if you have to do post-production stabilization of any kind, ah. that global shutter, oof. Yeah, it, it, I no longer have a lot of jello-looking stabilized shots. That, that's a good thing. I, I think yeah. by the time uh, when this when this when this post this podcast comes out, I will I believe that the Komodos will be 
out available for regulars, you know, regular folks kind of purchasing. I know that our sister site film tools will be getting some Komodos. And when this comes out, they may have yep. those there ready to, uh, and, and it purchased. is just a, you know, the size of that camera. And like I said, this, this test. So I did these tests very similar to how I would do Chernobyl or some of the other locations where like Chernobyl, it's a lot of in and out of a car because we go to a location, you know, it's, it's a giant city and it, you know, it's a, that the whole Chernobyl, what they call exclusion zones, the size of Rhode Island. Wow. Went to the to the out, outlying villages and stuff and film. And so there's a lot of in and out of cars, you know, and we use my friend's Defender uh, 130 Land Rover. So I did this sort of the similar test, like, okay, I'm going to have this in my bag. I'm going to have it semi. There's always a, there's a transportation configuration, how I have the camera set up to get it to the location. And then there's a configuration of the bags and everything once I'm in the location. Because, again, I don't have to have my laptop and hard drives and all that kind of stuff in my bags. So I have more room for other things to move around and reconfigure. So I start trying to do the same thing. So as I'm in the, the, the you know national parks, I'm going in and out of the cars. You know, and then I throw the backpack on and hike two miles to a location to film. And sort of it's really about the, the stuff that took me, you know, sort of four years to figure out with the helium. I, I don't want to four years with the Komodo. So I'm taking what I learned from there, sort of speeding that process up and figuring out what cage, what monitor, what handles, you know, what head. I have the, the Rhino gear, the, the Rhino camera gear Arc 2, which I really like. And I'm trying to test to see, could I use that as my my head for my tripod? You know, it allows me to really, you know, smooth motion, time lapse, mm -hmm. you know, typically I don't take sliders with me on trips. I'd like to, just it's extra gear that I just don't have room for. At some point can, you have to draw the line. Yep. I mean, oh, yeah. I, I, you know, and that's the case with kind of with anything. Um, but I think more so when you're doing the adventure <laughs> cinematography, like you do. But the problem is that, you know, I'm like, wow, I don't have to take all these batteries. Now I can take my Ronin S with me <laughs> so I can take a gimbal. It's always something. Yeah, but what you know, what I'm really hoping for, because I always take the drone with me, and I understand that the Mavic Three may be coming out soon. And what I've wound up doing is like I don't really have to take the gimbal because I have the Mavic, and I can just handhold the, the the drone and do the motion shots that I want. Yeah, it's it's 4K, which is fine. You know, it's not 8K, but most of my stuff's down converted anyhow. It's not raw, okay, but again, you got to make do with what you have, and you know. The reality is a lot of time, you know, I always use my wife and my parents sort of as the as the measuring stick. They can't tell the difference. Well, you know? The, you know, I think that's an important thing because you often have to think about what is the end result? Who's viewing it? And, you know, can they see that little uh, if, if I didn't roto it perfectly for that right. three seconds, are right. they going to be able to see it? And the answer is uh, answer is no. I think what what you've had to do is to make very careful calculations across the board on, you know, size, weight, quality, um, ease of workflow. There's so many things that you have that has to balance itself out to be able to effectively do what you do. Because the last thing you want to do is get to this location and be like, Oh, if only I had brought this thing, this yep. would be so much better. And, and, and I used to, you know, really be concerned about the laptop because I'm like, Oh, I want to process this stuff as soon as I take it so I can show the world. And, of course, now that the whole you know issue with copyrights and my attorney saying don't post anything until we send it the copyrights, and I've got you know because it, now it's it's less of an issue. I mean, I got back on Sunday. I'm just offloading my material now from this trip. It's sort of like, like it's going to take me a while to get the everything in order and then send it off to the copyright office. Of course, I think the, the, the you now have three months from the time blah blah blah. Even if you post things, so it's gotten a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so now I'm actually looking at, I believe it's Hedge, 
which makes great tools. Mm -hmm, yeah. Had... Um, they, I've, I've worked with one of their beta products for the iPad, for the iPad Pro to allow you to offload. Because I, I don't really need a laptop. I just need a means to get the R3D off and onto a hard drive. Sure. Well, we, we I think we talked about that on Twitter the other day that that product is coming. And I didn't yep. understand where. Is that just, are you offloading the R3Ds to the iPad or is it... Is it just using the, uh, the fact you can now connect the drive to the iPad? Like, how does connect that drive? Okay. So you could offload it to the iPad if you wanted to using the tool because it allows you to go to the local hard drive or to drive or whatever Apple's calling it. But if you have a drive connected, and so this is the other part of it, you know, through engineering that you got to figure some things out is that the every dock that they make for USB-C, mm -hmm. which is just so everybody understands, USB 3.1 and USB-C, are the same. Yeah. Uh, and, and then to be confused with Thunderbolt 3, which is the same yeah. connector, but yeah, different or, technology. Or USB 3.2. USB 3.2 and USB-C are the same in terms of the speed. Mm -hmm. It's the 10 or, or 40 megabits, I think it is, or 20 megabit, whatever it is. So you can get USB 3.2. There's no such thing as a, as a multi uh, port USB-C dock. For some reason, my understanding is the chip has never been made that allows you to have one USB-C in and then, you know, or one into the main computer, then like a hub. There's always one port and then one power port. It's not a data port. Okay. And so that's a problem on the, on the iPad because I need to have two ports. So I actually, again, found, I think it's StarTech makes a USB-C to USB-A connector, but it's USB 3.2 speed, get the right cables. So I can use that hub to connect two drives, you know, or the, the, the card reader and a drive. And so I'm actually, when you, when it shows up, it shows the source and destination. The source is the card reader, the destination is the drive. I'm hoping the next version of USB, excuse me, the next version of the iPad Pro has dual channel because it is slow. And, you know, I've talked to the guys at Hedge and it's like, yeah, there's not much they can do about the speed yeah. because of the architecture. It's being single channel, I guess. But if they make it dual channel, it'll be that much better. But even so, you know, as long as it's stable enough to copy all the stuff, you know, in an hour, because I'm not necessarily doing it. And, of course, that model would be great for the 22-mile hike or 26-mile hike because I can actually take an iPad versus a laptop. Yeah, well, I think that's where we get getting back to that size and weight yep. type of thing. I mean, there's, there's so, so much nice things an iPad can do for you only because of that size and weight and great battery life and all that kind of yep. stuff. But yep. there are the limitations of the connector and how many connections there are yep. and and you just have to weigh that, you know, hey, do I mind taking three hours to transfer files versus, you know, 30 minutes? Well, if I'm not, you know, most of the places I'm doing, there's, I'm not watching TV, you know, they want to have TV. You got uh, time in spades. Yep, yep. The only downside is I can't use my iPad to, you know, you know, watch some video that I've got on. I've got to use my phone. So I'm sort of Take a second iPad. Come I on. Know. Well, I'm, I'm hoping the next iPhone Pro, which, you know, I guess it's in the next week or two, supposedly. That's when the announcements typically are. We'll use USB-C. And if that's the case, then that really becomes a, a different model for me. Then I can also be using two different drives and doing the backup that way. But right now, I'm, I'm typically taking six terabytes of, or I'm taking 12 total terabytes, but six terabytes of, of storage and then I, I back it all up to a second drive so I have two copies. And then one time when we weren't sure about getting back across the border on one trip, I gave one set to Eric and one, and I took a set. So there's something happened. There was always a second set taking a second. Uh, oh, um, gotcha. Have you ever, have you ever shipped a second set back home for, for, uh, with that worry in mind that you may not get something back across? 
Yeah, well, that's why I had Eric do it. So Eric, Eric took one set and I took one okay. set. And I, I luckily made it across and, and Eric shipped me a copy. Or he actually held onto the drives until I saw him again and just used them back out in the field. So I'm really waiting to see if either Glyph or GTEC, I need, you know, four terabyte super small drives or eight terabyte super small drives. And that's typically enough for the type of thing. Because I'm not, you know, spraying, praying anything. I, they're all sort of idealized shots usually you know longer than 30 seconds to a yeah. minute length in, in so, other words you know what you're shooting yep you're thinking about what you're shooting yep. you're, you're you're taking the you have plenty of time sometimes on the plane or train ride you can say you know let me plan some shots in my head yep yep and then i, I started using uh, it's not really a new product but it's a product that about a year ago started supporting r3d and that's the the kino app from less pain software oh, yeah. yep and, th and that thing is fantastic and I've, I've worked with them a little bit on some you know variations on things that i you know i always look at it that yes i get it that i, I may be an outlier but it'd be really cool if your tool did this it's a you know, swiss it's army knife for yep. video Yep. Yep. And it, it's a great tool. And, uh, you know, it, it because for me, the way, you know, unfortunately with Red is that you can't rename the files. And so they have really sort of odd names. You know, it's it's the it's the camera ID and the real number and then this hash number. And I would typically on a trip do, you know, PGP is Philip Grossman Productions, zero one to whatever. And that's how I name things. There we are. I'll do it. You know, Uzbek zero one. Um, that way I know it's the Uzbek trip, but I can't do that. And then, you know, big, something like Chernobyl where I'll film in 20 different locations or 40 different locations over, you know, 14 days. I want to get it organized. Well, this application is really cool because it enables me first to see the R3D files mm -hmm. as thumbnails. And then I can actually move things within the finder and the app. And so I just went back through, I have, you know, I think it's. 12 or 14 terabytes of material I've shot over the last 10 years from Chernobyl that I'm going to start, start to put my own sort of documentary together because the, the Science Channel one was fun. It was interesting, you know, Discovery Science Channel, but it was it was sort of kitschy TV. You know, we had we, we investigated the four hypothesis for why the reactor exploded. And it was it was interesting, but it was TV ish. You know, it had to be done for that kind of audience. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to do it and, and get more people involved, you know, and understanding what happened there. But now I want to go back and take all this material and really do sort of a, a I don't think documentary is the right term for it, but basically a, a visual tour, you know, taking people through all the various areas and providing the history of what that area is. And I've got a bunch of images prior to whatever, but you know, the, the, would, key, the would, kind of has enabled me to, to organize that stuff. I would call that a documentary. It's a bit more of a, you know, I mean, documentaries are often educational, often they are not, but I would consider that a, uh, a documentary, but maybe, maybe its own unique term would, would, would probably yeah. might, might, um, yeah. might sell it better. I've been on the guys, I, I like to call it Kino for some reason. I've been yeah. uh, on the guys there to uh, asking them if you can just get um, like th thumbnail scrubbing, like where you, where you can have it in grid view. Yep. And apparently yep. it's a much more complex engineering effort than I, uh, than, than I think yeah. it is. And, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, uh, really you know, great, I keep, great tool. I keep pushing them because they, they did not, you know, the, I have some beta versions now that support the, uh, the R3D in the Komodo because the R3, the R3D, the Komodo has some minor changes to it. So they had to make some minor changes and adopt the latest version of the SDK. And it turns out because I have one of the first cameras we had the alpha version of the software that was even different then than what it, what it is in the published version now so I'm like okay here's some sample footage go fix it 
<laughs> but it's they're they're a great team and the the product is great and the integration now i i switched to davinci resolve it's two and a half three years ago now i think it is from premiere and of course i started on media 120 some odd years oh, ago wow, there, there's now, a, there's a podcast right there on its yeah. own Yep, and they have integration now with DaVinci, so it makes it really easy to be able to sort of organize and then send it to a program, which they they were able to do, I think, with Premiere before, or Final Cut before, I think it was Final Cut before, and they can now do it with Resolve. So that's really sort of streamlined that process as well. Yeah, in the field, it really is just a matter of, I, I want to get the material off the cards, and I tend not to reuse cards. You know, with the Compact Flash, it's easy because they're not all that expensive, and you can get lots of you know, still images with the red, it's not as easy. Obviously, I tend not to reuse the card if I can help it, uh, but I always make sure I have two copies of everything. And what, do, what do you do with those cards? You just put them on the shelf as another archive? Well, I don't, I should, I'm sorry, I don't reuse the cards in the field. Oh, oh, oh yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So they go, they go into the little pelican thing upside down. Yep. So okay. I know that I've used them, don't use them again. The problem now is that, you know, I've, I've gone to the Komodo, which is you see fast cards, which are, Cheaper than the than the red mini mags, but they're still expensive. Mm-hmm. And then I just I got the new R5 for my still camera, which uses again CF Express. So uh, I think that so one time I always joke, you know, the, the issue with all these different cameras isn't necessarily having all the different cameras; it's the batteries and the chargers that have to go along. And I think it was on my fourth trip to Chernobyl, fourth or fifth, that I had, I think it was five or six different battery types with me. Oh my between, gosh! Uh, the, I had the Panasonic TM7. I had the Canon. I had a GoPro. I had a drone. I had a GH4. I think with me. I had batteries for the Odyssey or something else, or for the Sony or for like like five different batteries. I said, "This is just nuts." <laughs> I, I gotta stop doing this. So there, some people might say, uh, "Philip, you have a problem." Yeah, and and I, I must admit, Hawkwoods came out with a product that's a a, a lifesaver for me. Because I'm now moved over to, you know, everything is, is NPF batteries. Sony has the market. Everything uses NPF batteries. Well, Red went with BP900 series batteries. I'm like, is, is that Now, when you say, is that the connection type or what, when you say use those those letters, what does that mean so, exactly? So it's a, it's a style of battery. So it's the NPF, or, or Sony NPF batteries, like the typical Sony battery that all Sony Handy cams yep. use, and everybody seems to use that for their monitors, for their LED right. lights. Gotcha. Sort of became ubiquitous. That's a 7.2 volt or 7.4 volt uh, system. Red went with the BP900 series, which is Canon's version of sort of that battery. Uh, I think it's because of the amperage that it requires as a okay. bit more amperage. And I'm like, oh, now I got to have you know my monitor is a BM, you know, a Portkey's BM5, but it uses the NPF battery. And my LED lights, various kinds, they all use the NPF batteries. Hookwoods makes a small plate that takes NPF and turns it into the pins, pinet layout, and whatever the voltage regulation needed for NPF. So now everything I use can use the new oh, BP900. Nice. So now it's one battery type. For the, uh, other than the, the the Canon camera still uses the LPN or LPE6 or whatever it is, N6. Well, we live in a, in a time now when it's almost like every niche need like that, someone can come in and make a product that's going to translate or, 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 or you know, reroute Yep. Something to, to you know to make exactly that happen. Yep. I think I think you know. And it's all weight trip. I, I got out to Denver or on my way out to Denver. I pulled over the side of the road. I saw somebody crop dusting. Went, oh, grab my my Komodo. I'll set it up real quick. And, I, and that's something I had to force myself to do on these trips. Is if I saw something goofy on the side of the road, I had to force myself to pull off and actually film it. Instead of just going, well, that's kind of cool, but I just drove by it at eighty miles an hour. You know, or go down to the next exit. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and force myself to do it, you know, knowing that I have no schedule. I can do whatever I want at this point in time. Yeah, you know, time-wise. So I was reaching through my bag, and I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't bring that plate, and I didn't bring any NPF batteries. Of course, part of me is going, well, I am in the United States, so I can always get that battery. It's not an impossibility. But luckily, I had stuck it in another pocket, and that's probably one of my biggest issues when I when I pack for a trip. What I typically do is lay everything out, pack it. I started using, was it HPA cases or HPV cases? The the They're like semi-rigid cases. Uh, Hermit Shell makes them on Amazon and they make them for all kinds. I and mean, they're cheap. They're like $12. I use a lot of these little cases because I have a lot of little things like, okay, batteries will go in this case. Charger will go in this case. Mm-hmm. SDI mm-hmm. cables will go in this thinner case. S- you know, drives will go in this case. So I lay everything out. And that's very organized if you take yep. the time to do that. Yep. Lay it all out. And then I Jenga it into my bag to make sure everything fits. Uh, I try to do this a couple days before. And then I look around to see what I may have forgotten, think through, well, maybe I should take this, maybe I should take that. Oh, I got to take that mount. I have a suction cup. Oh, what about this magnetic mount? You know, and then I'll unpack everything because it weighs too much and realize, okay, do I need this? Do I need that? You know, I probably do that twice. My, my wife's a fan of saying, and she gets it, she's an interior designer and her boss always says, the art of the design is in the edit. Which you know hmm. holds true even in film. Mm-hmm. The art, the edit. So the art of packing is in the edit, and it's figuring out what you don't need, not what you do need. You know. Yes, my wife laughs laughs at me because we'll go to NAB when we went to NAB, um, yeah. and uh, I'd be like, take two suitcases. She's like, you're out of your freaking mind. It's like you know, I'm just a world's worst packer, and I want to have everything I need, yeah. and I can check it done. Yeah. Not the not not when you're tra- uh, traipsing through the desert for 26 miles. Yeah. Can't and, do and that. I've and I've gone through all every kind of duffel bag imaginable. Because I used to be a big proponent. Hey, look, if you can't carry it, then you shouldn't take it with you. You know, so I'm going to bags with wheels. And then I hit 50. Okay, bags of wheels aren't so bad, but I want the best kind, so it doesn't look like a bag with wheels and works right. And and I've gone through, you know, I was a big proponent of, of L.L. Bean, has a really good duffel bag that's nice and worked real well. And I used that for several years. And then I switched over. 511 has th- uh, a series of bags, three different sizes. That is just, I think, is the best bag out there at this point in time in terms of the right number of pockets, the right size, organizational manner. And it just, and that their largest one actually has a, a sort of a plasticky space underneath it that you can unzip and actually put a tripod in now. Oh, wow. That's, that's always drives drives my bag size by what tripod, because I typically don't take the tripod on the plane. I'll stick it in the bag. And so I've gone through all different size tripod. I think I have owned seven or eight tripods at this point in time. And the Komodo has allowed me to go to much smaller ones. I started using the iFootage, their Gazelle, which is fantastic, because when it's compacted down, I think it's 21 inches long. Mm-hmm. And it has a quarter ball head on it, so you can do, use it for film. Then they came out with these things called C-Stars, which are like this quick-release system. So I have that on the top of all my tripods, and all my tripods have the, the female side or the male side of the head. And so now I can literally take off my film tripod and slap on my photo tripod and five seconds. Oh, that's nice. Uh, I mean, so you it, go through a lot of trial and error with the gear. Like you may buy something and it doesn't work and you can't use yep. it. And, and, and yep. it's, there's no way around it. You find out quickly that it's not going to work for the specific use case. But again, I go back 26 miles to the desert that you learn yep. really quickly what's going to work and what's not going to yep. work. Exactly. That's why, you know, I, I love, like I said, I love my F-stop gear bags, but they were missing some things on it that I needed. 
I mean, it took me a couple of years to sort of think through how I would modify. And I talked to them about doing it and they're like, ah, well, you know, we're going to upgrade bags, change out bags, blah, blah, blah. They never did what I needed to do. So I, you know, found a place that made the, the, the laser cut Molly and one of my wife's vendors that does upholstery was a, you know, they had the machines to do it. And I went over there and had them stitch this stuff on. It's, it's a world of difference. Oh, nice, now. Nice. Bag. Customizing your own product. Yeah. You, you know, and that's a lot of, you know, you, I used to do it on my own in, when I was younger, you know, because the engineer and me were like, I'll just fix it myself or build it myself or whatever. And then I started looking, well, there are companies out there that, that make the stuff I want. It's a lot better than what I can do. And now I'm at the point there are things that I want that nobody makes, but there are companies out there that will customize things. Oh, that's nice. In fact, I was just at in, in out in Colorado. I, I started thinking about doing overlanding, you know, after this whole pandemic thing, because I really sort of like traveling in the car and you know, and my wife and I are, you know, getting older in age and maybe that's something we'll do when we retire. And a uh, friend of a friend knows a guy, a couch engineering that does Unimogs. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know if you know, the Unimog is the Mercedes truck. It's yeah, actually they're, a combination they're of a truck and a tractor. Monster things. Oh my God, it'll go anywhere. So I stopped over at his place in Denver. Uh, he's like 175 acres out by the airport. And it's amazing. I'm like, oh my God, this is what I want to get. It's sort of unreasonable for what I do because most of my driving will be on the highway to get to the locations that I can drive off road. But again, it's it customizes everything, so you can build it out the way you need to. And you, I guess it's maybe I don't know with age or what, but I'm just like, there's always somebody out there that can customize what you need for the most part. And you, and you can always decide I want something a little bit better and different than what I have yep. now. Yep. Yep. Well, Philip, this has been a uh, a good chat. I think we're gonna break yep. this into two different. Um, sure two different podcasts. The last thing I want to ask you though, for people listening, where, if they want to follow and see these awesome images and whatnot, what's the best, best place to be able to just sit back and, uh, and marvel in the cool stuff you've captured? Sure. Sure. So my website is my name, all one word, Philip Grossman P and it's with one L. So it's P H I L I P G R O S S M A N.com. And then I'm on, as my parents say, the Facebooks, and on Instagram, and it's there, it's PGP images. And I think on Instagram, it's PGP dot images. And then on Twitter, it's PGP images. And I typically, I've started using Instagram a bit more recently. You know, King looking at, there's so much damn social media, I can't oh, yeah. manage it all anymore. Well, it's, it's kind of, you know, when you're capturing great images, it's, it's a much better environment for that type of thing yep. than Facebook or Twitter. Yeah. And, and I'm going to, you know, I revamped my website a little while ago and I just, I haven't done as much as I wanted to do with it. I think I'm going to start doing sort of, you know, I'd like to get to daily blogs with some images, but it'll probably more, you know, every couple days, uh, but start posting more stuff there as well, just because it's, it's easier to sort of tell the story of what the image is individually and add the video in where you sort of one or the other on Instagram and Facebook yeah. and just sort of getting the stuff out. That's, that's, I always, <laughs> People ask, how do you get your stuff licensed? How do people find it? I said the first the first footage I ever licensed, I licensed to Ridley Scott. And oh, he his production nice. company Yeah. His production company found it because somebody took their cell phone, videotaped the YouTube video playing on their computer screen, and then reposted it on reposted it on their oh YouTube channel. But of course I always have my copyright information on all of it. And so they, it had all the information about licensing. And so they reached out to me and I, I licensed material to Ridley Scott for uh, Equals, I think was the movie. 
No, and, and found by uh, sort of I don't know, illegal is the wrong word, but by the typical YouTube um, scammers who are yep. who are re, reposting stuff as their own, yep. and so it's yep. so rampant on YouTube. It's it's really yep. it's really yep. cra- really crazy. Well, good good luck with the, with the show, and hopefully yeah, we'll see you. some more out of that. This yep. has been a fun yep. chat. I just wanted to, you know, I love hearing these stories, and as one who gets stuck in the edit suite dealing with the images, we often don't know how they're captured and how you know the pain people have to go through to get some of these yeah. things. So that was and kind that's of one the, of these being an editor, and I always recommend anybody who's a shooter do editing so that you can help the editors know. Because I'm sure you've gotten a hard drive with no rhyme or reason to what the things are, oh, yeah, where they're stored, and they say make something of it. Well, and, and editors need to get out and shoot as well because yeah. we it's easy for us to like you know talk about how bad the shot was and how they didn't get this and how you know this is shaky and all this kind of stuff. But you know, actually being out there in the field having to roll camera sometimes can give a whole new perspective, and, and like you said, vice versa. As well, and we're we're living in a time when most people are doing a little bit of everything anyway, yep. and um, it's always it's always it's always good to feel the pain of, of of others in the in the production chain for sure. Yep, 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 and it just makes you a, a better all around uh, shooter editor or whatever if you Absolutely. understand the whole chain. And that's you know my day job was the 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 the, the actual production display of those images work you know all the hardware that actually makes tv happen so i was i've seen everything from you know making the stuff to how it actually goes out on tv and how the commercials are there or how it gets distributed in film and so it's really made me think differently about how i capture things yep. because of that and i know that a lot of filmmakers now because of course i'm not a fan of uh, 19 by or, yeah, 9 by 16 Whatever it is, I, I'm still a film is blind, not tall. <laughs> Sorry. Yep, but there are a lot of people who are you know need guides on there because they want it on the phone, and I, you know I think it's sort of a fad. And I always tell people it's sort of like what Wayne Gretzky's dad said: go to where the puck's going to be, not where the puck is. Uh, and I always say you don't behave the same way you did when you were 16 when you're 30. At least I hope you don't. So think about that. You know, there's a there are different markets, and that 16 year old's going to react more like a 30 year old does today, with some minor variations based on technology and how things change over time. But, you know, when the 16 year old turns 30 and can afford a 80 inch TV, they're going to get the 80 inch TV that's wider than tall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that's your movie screen's never going to adjust. The widescreen's still always going to have its place. But you know, you're right. We're living in a different world, and you got to think about all those delivery markets. And that's just kind of that's kind of kind of the way it goes. Don't be a don't be an old fart and uh, enjoy adjusting to to the new life, and you'll you'll be have yeah. a happier career. I oh, think. No, as I get older, I start to feel more and more like my dad. Oh, the young whippersnappers watching that YouTube stuff. <laughs> Although that's what I do every night when I'm bored: is watch YouTube movies or videos or whatever. So we all do that, my friend. As we yep. get older for sure. All right, Philip, thanks a lot. We'll talk at you again Certainly. soon. Certainly.